Would you please open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4? And I don't know how far I can go today. I brought notes for the regular preaching, but I don't know how my respiratory system will handle and my body. So in case I feel tired, I'll, I'll just stop where we stop and pick up next week, Lord willing. Okay? So... Philippians chapter 4, and as you can see, we are coming towards the end of this beautiful and powerful book. I want to invite you to stand if you can. Let's start in verse 4. Here's the word of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all. Oh, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In addition... Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is holy, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellency, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we are slaves, and yet, through Jesus, through His work, we can call you Abba, Father, our Father. What a privilege it is, from rebels, from enemies, to sons and daughters. We pray your blessing right now. I pray they would give us the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to be working in us and through us. Help our minds to be sharp. We pray for distractions, anxiety. We pray they would be putting to death all these things. We need to hear from you. We need your word to revive our soul. So help us. Father, I pray for myself. I pray that you would help me to be faithful, help me to be clear. And I pray for the congregation. Help this wonderful church to be faithful in the listening. I pray that you sustain my body, help me to be strong in you. Show your grace to us. We also pray for Kevin Millard in Brazil. We pray for Felipe in Guinea-Bissau, Africa. Francisco in Mozambique, Africa. Anchored in Truth Ministry. Bless these brothers and, and their wives and their families, their churches. Build your church. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We have been hearing and listening lately, at least, a lot about threats to mankind, the greatest threats to mankind, the greatest threats to humanity. Uh, in 2018, Newsweek published a, an article entitled how Donald Trump is the greatest threat to world peace. A few weeks ago, our president, Joe Biden, said that the greatest threat to the United States is white supremacy. And then some weeks later, he changed, and the greatest threat to mankind is global warming. So we keep hearing about the greatest threats to mankind, and I never hear what the Bible says, that the greatest threat to mankind is God himself. 
The fact that there is a holy and righteous judge who holds every single person accountable to his holy standard. All threats fail in comparison when you place the threat of this holy and warrior God. We have also be, been hearing and seeing a law when people die, their RIP, the RIP, rest in peace. As if people who died outside Christ would have rest and peace. There is absolutely no rest and no peace outside Christ Jesus. Actually, when people die outside Christ, that's when any sort of rest or peace that they had on earth vanishes. And that's, when you think about this, and you say, that's tragic, that's horrible, and yes, it is. It must be in order for the gospel to shine forth with beauty. And that's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that in Jesus, sinful men, enemies of God, now have been reconciled. They have peace with God. There is now peace between a violent, a holy, and a warrior God, and and a rebel, sinful humanity. That's the beauty and the glory of the gospel. That's why Paul, as he's developing his theology in the book of Romans, when he comes to chapter 5, after talking about the depravity of man, the need of being justified by faith alone, he comes and he bursts with joy, and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, shalom, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace, the shalom that was in the Garden of Eden, the, the shalom, the harmony that there was between God and man now has been restored through the last Adam. The first Adam destroyed the peace, and now through the last Adam, that peace, the shalom is restored. It's fascinating that one of, we, we, we always say the new covenant. But actually, the new covenant, you find just Jeremiah talk about a new covenant. The new covenant, the name that's most predominantly used in the Old Testament for the new covenant is the covenant of peace. I will make a covenant of peace where the peace between God and his people will be fully restored. And for Paul, the peace that the gospel brings is the greatest, is the greatest privilege, the greatest reward that any person could have is to have peace with God. Now we can go back and experience his smiling face upon us. And Paul is using this privilege, this reward, in order to encourage the Philippians and all of us to live holy lives. That's what he's doing right here. So, as we go to Philippians chapter 4, I just want to remember, I remind you and remember myself where we are. We are coming towards the end of the book, and that's basically the last section of the letter where we have exhortations. And go back to chapter 1, because in chapter 1, verse 27, it's interesting how Paul begins, the begins his letter to the Philippians, and he ends the letter with a very similar call to stand firm in the Lord. So in chapter 1, look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So to stand firm in the Lord is the same as to live a life worthy of the gospel, a life that matches the gospel of Jesus. And now he ends the letter with this exhortation. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. 
Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, you stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He begins and ends the letter with this call for the church to stand firm in the Lord. And now he's, just like he did with chapter 1, now in chapter 4 he's going to develop through a series of exhortations what he means by standing firm in the Lord. And you can see from verses 2 through 9, he has basically eight, eight exhortations, eight verbs that is in the imperative, and he's calling the church to exercise, to fulfill these duties in order to stand firm. So you can see how the church is supposed to stand firm. In verse 2, have the same mind, have the same fronel. Then he tells, help these women. The church is supposed to help one another. Not tear each other apart, but to help one another. Then he has rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Do not be anxious about anything. Pray about everything. Think about these things and practice these things. That's how the church is to stand firm in the Lord, okay? So now you know where we are, how he's wrapping up his series of exhortations. And as we come to verses 8 and 9, they're together, these two verses. And we know they're together because Paul is dealing in verse 8 how the church is to think, to think and then how the church is to act. Thinking leading to acting. Think about these things. Practice these things, Paul says. So we have, there's an inseparable connection between thinking and doing. Careful thinking cannot be divorced from constant practicing. So here's the outline. And today, Lord willing, we finish. We started, I don't know how many, two, three Sundays ago. We look at verse 8. The church's careful pondering, careful thinking, and now we move to verse 9. I just want to briefly review verse 8, because it has been a long time. So verse 8, just to refresh our minds, Paul says, In addition, he's adding to the preceding exhortations. So verses 8 and 9 are connected to the other exhortations. In addition, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is holy, whatever is righteous, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellency, if there is any praiseworthy, think about these things. And notice here that this exhortation is directed to whom? Who is he commending? Is he saying elders, missionaries, deacons, no brothers, brothers and sisters, the whole church. So if you are a Christian and you're part of the church, that's you. There is no escape. If you have the mind of Christ, amen? If you have the mind of Christ as a Christian, Paul says, now we have the mind of Christ. If you have the mind of Christ, you have the duty of guarding that mind and feeding that mind with what pleases Christ, amen? You have the mind of Christ, you have the duty of guarding and feeding that mind with the things that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. And he used the word there, think about these things. Logizomai, to give, to give careful thought, to let one's, one's mind dwell. And you remember, it's in the imperative, second person, plural, and present. What does he mean? You all be constantly thinking about these things. That's not something that you do once a week, once a month, once during the day. No, it's a, it's a habit. It's a lifestyle that we all must be placing these things before our minds. And what is the first element in the list? Verse 8. What is the first thing? True. Everything starts with the truth of God. Amen? And then he moves on to the other things we must be placing before our eyes, inside our minds, between our ears. So, 
the movies you watch, the things you're entertaining your mind with, the music you're listening, do they match Philippians 4.8? Amen? So, you grab a book, And you should think, how is the reading of this book going to help me obey Philippians 4.8? You grab a movie, or you're choosing a movie to watch. What are you supposed to be thinking? How is that connected to Philippians 4.8? Amen? We need to stop, we need to put to death... The mess up concept that I see in many Christians of, let's see how many profanities I can handle in this movie or in this song. How many sexually immoral scenes I can handle here. The Christian is not marked by how close he can come to the precipice of hell without falling. Amen? We are saved and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be zealous for good and holy things. So when you get a movie, uh, a song, uh, uh, whatever, you've got to be thinking, how is that matching Philippians 4, 8? And if it's not matching, you need to do something about that. And don't be lamenting, ah, oh, bummer, I really want to watch this movie. No. I really want you to think about what is lovely, honorable, commendable. And we should be thinking these things towards one another. Amen? How are we thinking towards one another? Our thoughts towards each other here. Is it filled? Is it clothed with what is true? What is lovely? What is commendable? What are my thoughts towards Jeff? What are my thoughts towards Emily? What are my thoughts towards Sam? Are they clothed? Baptized, immersed in what is true about him, what is lovely, what is commendable, what is honorable. Can you imagine how our relationships would change if when we have those nasty thoughts about someone, we bring back to Philippians 4 8. Wait, wait a second, how, how is that matching what I'm supposed to be thinking about and having my mind dwell upon? So, Paul talks about the think, thinking, and then he moves to acting or doing. And there is, you can see in verse 9, what you have learned, what you have received, what you have heard, what you have seen in me, practice these things. And there is a connection between what we think and how we act. Right thinking gives birth to right doing, as we are thinking about having the mind of Christ, being regenerated in Christ Jesus. Amen? So what we are feeding our minds will inevitably lead to how we act. And Paul mentions four areas. He has two pairs. Can you see in verse 9 there are two pairs? Four areas, two pairs. What you have learned and received... And then what? What is the second pair? Heard and seen. Listen and watched with your eyes. And you have four symbolizing the totality. The totality of all that Paul has communicated to them in his teaching and in his living. So the first pair. Paul says, what you have learned and received... And that's the Christian life, brothers and sisters. Uh, the Christian life is a life of constant what? Learning and receiving. Amen? Constant learning and receiving. We are disciples of Jesus. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? 
What is a, a word that we use? We don't use disciple that much. So what is the other word that we use in English? Pupil, student. Yes. A pupil, a student, is someone who is sitting under someone's feet and learning. And that's the Christian life. A life of constant learning, receiving. The learning and receiving here, I, I, I strongly believe that refers to the formal teaching of the scriptures, the formal preaching in church setting. Because this word here for receiving is the word that Paul used for welcoming a body of doctrines, a body of tradition. So I believe that Paul is talking in this first pair here about how Christians learn and receive sound doctrine Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, through the formal gathering of the church. And we see that pastors and congregation, they have a responsibility when it comes to learning and receiving. Amen? I have the duty and the responsibility to prepare and teach you what is right, what is sound, and you have the duty and responsibility of what? Receiving and learning. Nobody can receive on your behalf. It's not like your spouse can receive the gospel and grow in Christ on your behalf. Amen? That's impossible. So we all have responsibilities. So the question is, how have you been preparing yourself when it comes to learning and receiving in the formal setting? How have you been preparing your heart, your mind, to learn and receive and welcome some hard doctrine, some profound teachings of the Bible? How did you prepare yourself yesterday, this morning, to come to church? You see, people don't prepare themselves. Remember, there was that quote from Jay Adams. You don't bring a bucket full of excrement, and you put that bucket in a well, and you hope to drink clean water. There must be preparation to receive, to welcome. Amen? All week, for me, Saturdays are the days, and you, most of you know that, that's the day for me that it's set apart. Set apart to be ready to teach, to impart all that I have been studying and learning throughout the week. That's why oftentimes it's very rare for me to be at a party on a Saturday. It's not because I don't like you or I don't love you. It's just part of my preparation for being here. And then I ask you, how have you been preparing yourself to come to church Sunday morning? How is, if we could go into your home, how, how would we see you preparing yourself to come and receive and learn Saturday I party all night and then you hope to come here and be awake and ready and that's impossible <laughs> so there is dual both responsibilities here the preacher the pastor and the congregation in learning and receiving but then Paul also has a second pair and look at that, and the listening and watching and the Christian life is also marked not only by the learning in the formal context, but the learning through imitation, from watching others, right? Amen? We learn, just like little kids, we learn from watching. Watching others, listening to their conversation, listening to how they pray, watching how they behave. Much learning takes place by watching. And that's why so many public schools and universities, they are not only filled with depraved teachings, but depraved teachers. 
Not only the depravity and the, the, the ugliness of the teaching, but also they know if they have teachers and professors who embody that depravity, some will follow after and imitate those teachers and professors. So we see Paul is placing these two pairs and he's showing us that in the Christian life there is the formal and the informal setting where we grow, where we grow into Christ's likeness. There is the formal setting, the Sunday after Sunday, where you have the exposition, the preaching of the Scriptures, Wednesday after Wednesday, where we assemble, there is the teaching of the Scriptures. And there is the informal setting that throughout the week, where, when we get together, we have lunch together, we have dinner together, we go out for coffee, we work together, we do something together. And in this time, we are watching each other, we are talking to each other, and learning from each other. So, we see the importance of healthy replicas of Jesus Christ. Look at Paul says, what you have learned, what you have received, what you have heard and seen in me. And that's showing how Paul, when he was with the Philippians, he was able to show them not only through the teachings and preaching, but also through his lifestyle. There is an emphatic, in me, in me. You saw me, you heard me. You heard, was there any dirty jokes when I was with you? Was there any filthy talk when I was with you? You heard me, you saw me. Imitate me. Because you can only imagine, right? The Philippians are saying, Paul, give us an example. You have all these exhortations to think about what is true. Honorable, holy, lovely. Give us an example, Paul. A picture is worth what? Or a photograph is worth a thousand words. And Paul says, oh, here is the photograph. Look at me. And earlier in the epistle, in the letter, he talked about others who they were supposed to follow. Every Christian is called to imitate more mature Christians, and they are called also to be an example to others. I like what Gerald Hawthorne, he writes, he says, Paul believed that those who tell others to become Christians are obliged, they are obligated to show them what it is to be a Christian. Those who call others to be a Christian, they have an obligation to do what? To show Christianity. And that's what the Bible says. The New Testament's all over the place about making the gospel attractive through our lives. So in the Christian life, there is no such thing as do what I say, but don't do what I do. We often hear that. Oh, do what I say, do what I tell you, but don't do what I do. No, no, that has nothing to do with Christianity. There is no such dichotomy or contradiction there must be no such dichotomy or con contradiction in the Christian life. What we tell others, we should be doing. They should be calling others to imitate us. So Paul was of the conviction that the truths of the Christian gospel must never, never be abstracted from action. Always expressed in the life of the teacher. So we need healthy replicas of people who embody the gospel. You see, the gospel, we were talking to the kids last night, the gospel is not these abstract ideas floating around. The gospel is embodied, takes life in the Christian, and must be able to see and hear and touch so, there is the need of healthy replicas. And where do you find healthy replicas? In healthy churches. So, there is the need of a healthy local church. Christians can only fully grow into Christ's likeness in the context of a healthy local church. That's how God made us. We flourish, we grow into Christ's likeness when we are surrounded 
by people that we can see, we can touch with our hands, we can hear with our ears the gospel, and also where you can learn and receive sound preaching, sound doctrine. That's why it's so vital a healthy local church where you learn and welcome the, the doctrines and also you're watching people who live those doctrines. Amen? And Paul is famous for always calling people to imitate him, to watch him and imitate others. So, for example, he tells the people in Ephesus as he's giving his farewell, you yourselves, Acts chapter 20, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. You know, you saw me. That's why he can tell the Corinthians, imitate me. The, the, the Thessalonians, imitate me. And it's easy for us, especially in our context, in our culture, to think that's arrogant. That's so arrogant to ask someone to imitate you. Right? That's, there's so much pride there. I appreciate what Stephen Fowl in his commentary, he, he, he writes, he says, As with any complex, as with any complex practice, we can only hope to acquire these skills, disciplines, and habits to the extent that we, sub, that we submit ourselves to the example of those more advanced in the practice. So, for example, you're going to become a doctor. You need to practice with a doctor to learn. You are a carpenter. You got to learn from someone who has more experience than you. And any other, any other area where it requires skill, you need to learn from somebody else. And the same with the Christian life. Hence, for Paul and for all Christians, the only arrogance surrounding the language of imitation would be the arrogance of those so formed by the ethos of individualism that they think that they can walk the path of discipleship without observing, learning, learning from and imitating those who are already farther down that path. Listen to this. The only arrogance surrounding the language of imitation would be the arrogance of those who are so formed by the ethos of individualism that they think that they can walk the path of discipleship without observing, learning from, and imitating those who are ready farther down that path. And it's heartbreaking how many people who profess to be Christians in the Reformed circle profess to know the Bible, so much knowledge, and they are unable and incapable of committing themselves to a local church where they can learn from others and be an example to the younger ones. So, who have you been imitating? Who have you been imitating? Another question you can ask yourself is, who they spend time with? Who they spend time with? Who they hang out with? And the people who you hang out with will be the people who you are imitating. Many times unknowingly. But that's the people whom you are imitating and following after. Not only that, but the other question is, who have you been discipling? Who have you been saying, follow me, imitate me, walk with me? Remember what Hawthorne said? Anyone, every, every Christian who is telling others to become a Christian is obligated to show Christianity through his life. And I praise the Lord. I thank the Lord for this church. For the great number of men and women surrounding my life, especially Father's Day, and many fathers who are worthy of imitation, men who are not perfect, 
by striving to follow after Christ, to love Christ, to be a faithful replica of the Lord Jesus. Amen? And then comes the main, the main verb here, the main command. Look how Paul says, What you have learned, what you have received, what you have heard, what you have seen in me, practice these things, do these things. The verb, the Greek verb here means to bring about, to accomplish something through activity. Meaning, you cannot do these things by laying in bed. You cannot do these things by being lazy. It requires effort, a lot of effort, to accomplish these things. Once again, the verb is in the present tense, imperative, second person plural. What does it mean? All of us, all of you, be constantly doing these things. It's not once in a lifetime, once a week, but constantly doing, practicing these things. All the learning, all the receiving, all the listening, all the watching must be manifested in a life of doing. Amen? Carrying out, obeying. See, some people, they get their heads so big with so much knowledge. And all that knowledge is not transferred to the body. And then you have a sick person with a gigantic head and everything else is in atrophy. They listen to 10, 20 sermons per week. They read theological books. They have read the Calvin's Institute 20 times. And yet, you don't see them practicing, doing, applying what is required in the Christian life. We are called to be a church of doers. It was Jesus himself who said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, they will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So let us continue striving to be a church of doers, a church of wise men, wise women, who are always putting to practice what we are learning. And then comes the last, the last part of the verse, the church's comforting promise. And that's towards the end of verse 9. Paul says, What you have learned and received, what you have heard and seen in me, practice these things. And look at that. And, and, that's a consequence. Then indeed, only then, the God of peace will be with you. And that's a wonderful, wonderful promise to a church that loves God. And we know that we show our love towards God by what? If you love me, you obey. You do. So for a church that loves the Lord, that shows this love through actions, here's this beautiful, wonderful promise to the church that rejoices in the Lord, to the church that shows its gentleness to all, to the church that's putting to death anxiety, actually is praying for everything, the church that is thinking about wonderful things. Then you have this wonderful promise of the God of peace will be with you. Some people try and hope to acquire peace through all sorts of means. Yoga, Eastern meditation, so many different ways trying to acquire peace. Some people try to acquire peace by showing up to church. Some people get membership in a church and they think they're going to acquire peace. But look at the promise of peace. It's not for people who show up to church, but to what? To those who do, those who obey in the context of the local church. And Paul here, you can see that he's putting together this whole section. In verse 7, he promised the peace of God. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. 
with your prayers, through supplication, thanksgiving. Make your request known to God. And then what happens? And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. And now he talks, he, he moves further. And he, he's continuing. And now it's not just the, the, the peace of God, but the God of peace himself. And the God of peace will be with you. And isn't that amazing? That of all the attributes that Paul could choose, God of holiness, God of love, God of mercy, God of grace, God of righteousness, God of war, he chooses what? What? The God of peace. For Paul, that's the greatest, the greatest blessing of the gospel is to have peace with God. Paul loves with all his heart the fact that our God is for him and with him. Not only because he, he lived the most tor tormented life of all. Think about turmoil, tribulation. And that would be wonderful. When you're going through a lifestyle like that, you always remember that you have a God of peace. But that's not the only reason. It's because Paul knew the scriptures. He knew that apart from Jesus Christ, he had no peace with God. That's why in Romans chapter 5 we saw earlier, Therefore, now have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's heart was overwhelmed with the reality that God had restored shalom with mankind. And Paul's heart was so overwhelmed with the thought that God now was in peace. They had peace with one another. That, that becomes Paul's favorite prayer. That's Paul's favorite benediction to the churches. The God of peace. So, for example, he says to the church in Rome... Romans 15:33 May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Or Romans 16. Now he's wrapping up the letter. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 2 Corinthians 13:11. And it's amazing, especially when churches were having problems of division. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Or 2 Thessalonians 3.16 Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. And that's flowing, not because of a tradition, something that Paul learned. Hey, I always say this benediction, the God of peace be with you. No, it's because he knows the scriptures. His heart is overwhelmed with the reality that God has restored a relationship with him. Think about the, the Bible, the great story of the Bible, the grand scheme of scriptures, the story of reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Bringing two parties that were hostile towards one another now back into harmony, friendship, love. And that's the story of the Bible. We start in Genesis chapter 3. We could start in Genesis chapter 1. God makes men to dwell in his presence. And there was shalom, there was harmony that was broken with the fall. So God is the author of perfect peace. His Messiah is the Prince of Peace. And because we have re received reconciliation through Christ, we have peace with God. God in turn calls us to be part of this ministry of reconciliation by preaching and promoting peace like Christ Jesus. So the whole theology of the Bible, as you think about the scriptures, is this story of God bringing his people back to himself so they can dwell once again in his temple, enjoying his shalom, his presence. There was shalom, there was wholeness. That's the Hebrew word for peace. Shalom means wholeness, unity, 
welfare, not warfare, but welfare. That's what there was in the Garden of Eden before the fall. There was friendship between Adam and God, Eve and the Lord. And then what happens in chapter 3 of Genesis? Yeah, what we call the fall. Man falls from the state of peace and shalom. No longer, no longer peace between God and humanity. What does God place right at the entrance of the Garden of Eden? The cherubim with flaming swords, the angels protecting. Let, let me ask you, the, the, the flaming cherubim with the flaming swords, is that a symbol of peace? It's a symbol of hostility between God and man. And what we see is men departing, as you walk through Genesis, men departing farther and farther and farther away from God's presence, moving east. No shalom, no harmony, until God starts the process once again by calling His servants. That's the story of the Bible. The gospel is the wonderful news now that because Christ Jesus has accomplished the great work of reconciliation, man can be restored. And that's why, as I said before, the new covenant, the most predominant title for the new covenant is the covenant of peace. I will make a covenant of peace. They will be my people and I will be their God. The God of peace dwells with us once again. His relational, peaceful presence is restored. Do you remember the benediction that Aaron was taught to speak over Israel? The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. Oh, be gracious to you. May His countenance be lifted up upon you. His smiling face, and then He finishes and give you peace, shalom. And now in Christ, that benediction is fulfilled. We have the face of God smiling upon us, and we have peace with God once again. And that's amazing because Paul had said in verse 7, and the peace of God will be guarding your hearts, and now He moves. As if God, do you remember when, I, when we walked through verse 7 and we saw that the word for guard was the word for a garrison? A great number of soldiers protecting. And now changes as if the commander is not sending just a troop, but the commander himself is coming to dwell with you. I'm not just sending a troop to guard you. I myself... The Lord of hosts will come and dwell with you to provide you peace. As the world is looking for peace everywhere, they cannot find. And here is the most glorious promise of all. That the God of all peace will dwell with his people as we walk in holiness. And honestly, there is nothing more motivational, more rewarding to Christians than this promise that the God of peace will be with you. There is nothing more rewarding to the true Christian than the promise of enjoying the presence of God Himself. Amen? We sing, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, loving you, there is no greater thing. There is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best. It's not wealth, it's not health, marital blessing, a new job, a large amount of earthly security, a comfortable life. But the greatest reward and the greatest motivation for the Christian is this promise of enjoying the presence of God Himself. So, as you think about all these commandments that Paul has here, rejoice in the Lord, be gentle to all, 
Stop being anxious. Pray about everything. Think about these things. Practice these things. And you might become overwhelmed. Oh, so much doing. So much duty here. And then he gives the most precious motivation of all. Oh, here's the reward. And the God of peace will be with you. He's not only sending an army to guard you. He's coming himself and he's going to dwell with you. Let me ask you, does that excite you? Does this promise excite you? Does this promise thrill your heart? The God of peace will be with us as we walk in holiness, in obedience to his commandments. Would you be more excited, let me ask you, if, if that's how Paul had put it. Think about these things and do these things and your bank account will be enlarged. You will get a much better job. Oh, your health will prosper. No more sickness. You will be able to have the house of your dreams. Do these things. Think about these things. And you're going to have the vacation of your dreams. Zero debt. Or do these things and the God of peace himself will dwell with you. What excites you the most? Be honest. Because that's very revealing of where your heart is. I hope that thrills you, excites you, this promise that as we are doing these things, as we are carrying out our, all these commandments here, we are eager to experience the presence of God in a deeper, in a newer way that we had not experienced before. And we could invert the promise. That's a scary thing. Don't think about these things. Look at that. Don't think about what is true. Don't think about what is holy. Be anxious. Don't pray. Don't do these things and what happens? And the God of peace will not be with you. So, when we change, we see the great reward for an obedient church. The promise of God being there. But there is no peace to the disobedient. Brothers and sisters, there is no peace to the disobedient. And some people in our circles, they have enough knowledge to enjoy God like nobody else. They have so much knowledge of God. And yet, because they do not obey the Lord in these small things their lives are chaotic it's never marked by peace shalom harmony because it's a life of disobedience here's Paul a man who lived under turmoil tribulation and he was a man Surrounded, guarded by the peace of God and having God with him, dwelling with him. So to be able to enjoy the peace of God and the God of peace is indeed the greatest blessing of salvation. There is nothing better, not more valuable, nothing more exciting than the promise that we can enjoy God's presence in a deeper, in a newer way that we had not experienced before. One scholar says, this final assertion serves as a reminder that imitating Paul is not an end in itself. Rather, it's a means by which one can maintain and deepen one's communion with the God of peace. All that we do, our acts of obedience is to enjoy God himself. And for me, that's so amazing. Paul, do you remember, whether I come or not, Paul doesn't know if he will come, but he knows one who will come. 
the God of peace. I might not come, but as you walk in obedience, the God of peace, He Himself will come. And it's beautiful because we don't deserve anything. And the Lord promises, my peace will guard you. And not only my peace will guard you, I myself am coming to dwell with you. The God of all peace. So as we bring towards the conclusion, we see as we put together this whole section here, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace, the shalom of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, in addition, brothers. Wait, wait, wait. There's more. Not only the peace of God. There's more. In addition, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is holy, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen me, practice these things. Oh, and here, here's the greatest reward of all. Not only the peace of God and the God of peace will be with you. This week... I saw the video of our brother, Tim Stevens. He's a pastor in Canada, being arrested for the second time. Being arrested at his home, his family, his kids. And you can see a man guarded, guarded by the peace of God and having the God of peace with him there. Not a man barking, angry, threatening, but a man guarded by the peace of God. Think about these things. Do these things. And the God of peace will be with you. And not only Him, we as a church have experienced the peace of God and the God of peace. In hard times, we have experienced the fulfillment of this promise. The God of peace. Elohim Shalom. Yahweh Shalom. Dwelling with us. Guarding us. That's why no matter what's taking place outside the church, no matter what's taking place outside the church, Every time we gather together, the God of peace is with us, and we are guarded by peace. Amen? Amen? Amen. His covenant of peace is a reality. We have experienced that. But for those who are outside Christ, and I'm sure that there are people here outside Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no peace. No peace. God himself says, there is no peace to the wicked. No shalom, no rest. And that's the beauty of the gospel, is that God has opened the way for sinful, rebellious men to have reconciliation. Shalom once again with Him. And you see, the gospel doesn't invite you to come. The gospel bids you to come, commands you to come. It says, come, come to me, come to Christ. Think about the beauty of the gospel. The God of peace sending the Prince of Peace to become a peace offering. Isaiah 53, a peace offering in order to restore peace between God and man. So, embrace Christ, run to Christ, and you will see the smiling face of God and the shalom, the harmony, the wholeness, and the God of peace himself surrounding you. Amen? Father, we thank you for your love and your care towards us. You are indeed a holy, righteous, wrathful God. 
But in the gospel, we behold in a new way the God of peace. A God who loves harmony, wholeness, friendship with his people. Thank you for sending your son, the Prince of Peace, to become a peace offering. And now we can have fellowship. We can have harmony and friendship with the God of the universe. Help us to be obedient to you in order for us to enjoy this wonderful reward, the greatest reward of all, to enjoy the peaceful presence of God. So help us. Give us grace, we beg you, mercy to be obedient to these commandments. Thank you for a church that is eager to obey you. And because of their obedience, we have been experienced the presence of the God of peace among us. And we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.